0: This is a uh, this is a Christmas passage. This is a birth narrative. This is one of the narratives about Jesus' birth. But I don't know if you've noticed, whenever you go to any kind of uh, almost any kind of uh, Christmas uh, service, gotta get this down a little bit. Any kind of Christmas service, any kind of, uh, especially a service of lessons and carols where they, uh, uh, they're taking a look at maybe a whole lot of Christmas passages, this is never read. Gee, I wonder why. Uh, I don't know. Let's read it. Let's see. Why is it always left out? Now, when they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. "'Get up,' he said. "'Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt.' Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up and took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I have called my son. And when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted, because they are no more. And after Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Take, get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, He will be called a Nazarene. This is God's word. Now, I wonder why that's always left out of the lessons. Here's why. Uh, And I mentioned this this morning. There's certain words that uh, at Christmas time are always lifted up. They appear in bulletins and they're used uh, by the speakers. And they're words that evoke something. They evoke feelings, very strong feelings, positive feelings. Here's some, I made a little list of them. Peace, gift, birth little child, angels, light, you know, when I say these things, you know, it, uh, how about slaughter, flight, brutality, uh, no, no, not, no, not at Christmas, give us the other ones, but you see, Christmas, the Christmas story, the Christmas narratives give us both, this passage, the main the main person in this passage, one of the reasons why it's left out, is the main character in this entire passage is who? It's Herod. Herod the Great, the king of Judah, who was appointed by the Roman emperors. Uh, Rome appointed him, the king of Judah, in, about, uh, in Judea in about 40 BC, and it took him about three years to get control, and he was reigning when Jesus was born. And you see, his violent attitude toward the Christ is the reason for everything that happens. First of all, it's 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 Herod that causes the flight to Egypt. The family of Jesus Christ are refugees. Refugees in Asia. And they move from Asia to Africa. We hear a lot about Asian refugees and African refugees, and here's Jesus, and he's one. And uh, then, of course, after uh, Herod discovers that uh, uh, basically no one has told him exactly who this little child is and so on, then the second part of the passage, which you see in verse 17, 16, 17, Herod just goes in and makes sure that every little boy under the age of two in Bethlehem is killed. Then thirdly, after Herod dies, (coughs) uh, the, uh, the family of Jesus comes back However, verse thirty, verse 22, it says, When he had heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, and rightly so. Archelaus was the son of Herod, and even though he um, uh, didn't reign for a very long time, he was just like his father in his policies, and I'll mention those in a minute. And so Joseph was very right to say we can't stay here. There's an awful lot of um, uh, brutality, danger, difficulty, uh, and and this passage is so dark, a lot of people have questioned its historicity. In fact, one thing that's interesting is that there is no independent record. We have no historical record outside of the Bible of the massacre of the, uh, the young boys in Bethlehem. And so some people have said, well, this didn't really happen. Uh, but to say that just shows you don't know much about Herod let me tell you a couple things about Herod. Herod, when he came into power, the first thing he did was slaughter everybody uh, in the former dynasty. The, 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 the original, the older dynasty of the kings of Judea were called the Hasmonean dynasty. And he was an Edomenean dynasty. You know, he was starting his own dynasty. So he slaughtered everybody. Uh, to make sure that none of them would uh, give him any trouble. At one point in his life, he executed half the Sanhedrin, which is the 70 priests and elders who were, uh, 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 the, uh, in a sense, the religious supreme court of Israel, and uh, because they were giving him trouble, at one point he killed about half of them. One time, in a fit of rage, he ordered 300 court nobles killed. One time, because he really didn't trust her, he had his wife executed. Then he had had, uh, had her mother executed. At one point, he had three of his sons executed because he could, didn't trust them. And when he was dying, he assembled in a central building in Jerusalem dozens and dozens of noblemen. He had them brought there, held under guard, and he ordered that the minute he died, his death should be mourned and celebrated by everybody in that building being killed. And fortunately, they didn't do it. However, do you think... Uh, since there was probably only, considering what we know about the size of Bethlehem, twenty or thirty little boy, little boys killed by Herod in this massacre. If you knew anything about Herod, if you knew anything about that, knew what he was like, you would know that something like this wouldn't even be a footnote. Nobody, it wouldn't even, it wouldn't merit page twenty-three. And uh, and that's really why Herod uh, is... Th- what he does here and what we see about him in this passage is absolutely in line with historical facts. What a dark passage. Why even bring it up? And I'll tell you why, because it's in the Bible. And if it's in the Bible, uh, Matthew wanted to get something across to us about the gospel, about Christmas, about Christianity. And so the story of the flight, the slaughter... And the, and the return to Egypt tells us some things, and it has a number of lessons, and let's just look at them while we have the time. The first lesson, the first thing this tells us is that Christianity is a fight. Christianity is a fight. It doesn't just bring peace. It also brings strife. Uh, Herod depicts very vividly a principle and that is that the coming of Christ not only solves lots of problems, it actually creates lots of problems. It doesn't just bring tremendous peace, but it also creates new strife. Now, there's a couple of passages. For example, here's another Christmas passage I'm not reading tonight, or at least we're not preaching on it tonight. But this is also a Christmas passage. When, when uh, Mary and, and Joseph brought Jesus into the temple to dedicate him, and to be circumcised, we're told there was an old man, Simeon, Who was there. And that when he was there, he got a vision and he received revelation. And he turns to Mary and he says, uh, of course, now one of the things he says is the nunc dimittis, which is very famous and people know about it. Simeon says, now let, he, he prays to God, he says, now let thy servant depart in peace according to thy word for mine eyes have seen, you know, thy salvation. But then he turns to Mary and he says this, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against, and a sword will pierce your heart too. <laughs> you know, uh, maybe next time we have an infant baptism, you know, and, you know, I'm up here and everybody's cooing over their baby, maybe, maybe suddenly somebody will get a revelation. And they come up to you, you know, you're, you're the mother and you have this little baby and you say, this child will be... Spoken against this child will create all kinds of problems. This child will create all kinds of strife. People will come against this child. All sorts of wars will will happen over this child, and a sword will pierce your soul also. How would you feel? But see, that's what Simeon does. Simeon comes up and says that. What he's saying is, of course, that Jesus Christ doesn't just bring peace. He brings a sword. In Matthew, in Matthew itself, in Matthew chapter 10, verse 34... Matthew reports Jesus saying this, Think not that I have come to bring peace on earth. I have not come to bring peace on earth but a sword. I come to turn a man versus his father and a daughter versus his mother. So what he's saying is Christmas means that when Jesus comes, there's fighting. Now, one of the most, in the early days of my Christian life, you know, you read certain books, and I, I guess it can never happen again. There's certain quotes, certain passages of certain books that I read when I was a young Christian that has sort of sunk deep into my foundation. And I guess that it can never happen again. In your early days of your, the early years of your Christian faith, you really get formed a lot by what you're exposed to. But one of the books uh, that helped me a great deal was a book by J.C. Wright called Holiness. And he has a passage in, a chapter in there called The Fight. And this is the passage. He says, now he wrote about 100 years ago. That's the reason why you're going to hear him say something. He wrote in the, in the 1800s, not the 1900s. He says, uh, he was the Bishop of Liverpool. He was an Anglican Bishop in, in Britain. And he says, there is a vast quantity of religion current in the world, which is not true, genuine Christianity. It satisfies sleepy consciences, but it's not good money. It's not the real thing, which was called Christianity 1800 years ago. There are thousands of men and women who go to churches and chapels every Sunday. Their names are in the baptismal register. They're married in Christian marriage services. They'll be buried in Christian funeral services. But you never see any fight about their religion. Of spiritual strife, exertion and conflict, and self-denial and watching and warring, they know literally nothing at all. It is not the Christianity of the Bible. True Christianity is a fight. I'll say this again. Take comfort in this. The children of God have two great marks about their lives. They may be known by their inward warfare as well as by their inward peace. Now, what, you can see it here. Jesus Christ comes and he brings new peace and he also brings new war. The same thing happens to us. Now, to some degree, this, this depends a little bit on you. Um, Your non-Christian life could be a life of tremendous calm because, do you know, some forms of sin can create tremendous calm. Uh, A favorite quote of mine that I use every so often that you might have heard, C.S. Lewis says, if you want to keep your heart from being broken, be selfish. Lock your heart in a little casket of selfishness. Don't hope in anything. Don't give yourself to any cause. Don't give yourself to anybody don't really care enough about anybody, in other words, don't love, don't hope, don't work, don't sacrifice, stay selfish, and to some degree, you can actually have a pretty calm life. In fact, you can have a very calm life. And therefore, it's possible that when you become a Christian, if you have that kind of calmness, becoming a Christian is almost like coming out of a calm harbor into a storm, In some of your cases, you might have a very turbulent non-Christian life, so when you first come into Christianity, at first it seems like a great deal of peace compared to where you were. But if you stand back far enough, and you look at the overall statements of the Scripture, this is what it says. You get a new radical peace when you become a Christian, and you get brand new strife and fights. In other words, a lot of things that used to bother you, this is what it means to become a Christian, a lot of things that used to bother you don't anymore, and a lot of things that never bothered you because of denial and avoidance begin to. And that's how you know you've become a Christian. Things that used to bother you terribly don't at all, and things that never bothered you at all begin to. And there, in other words, there's both new peace and new war. That's what the Scripture's telling us about Christmas. So, see, for example, we'll say, well, what do you mean? All right, I mean, this, this could be very long, and I won't make it long. If, if it was, If we had enough time, I'd look at all the Scripture, but... When you become a Christian, you get a new piece of conscience. That's a new piece. Jesus coming into your life says, now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So when you look at your sins and you look at your flaws or you look at your past, your conscience doesn't roar anymore. See? Well, may the accuser roar of sins that I have done. I know them all and thousands more. Jehovah knoweth none. Don't ask me where that comes from. Every time people say, where is that from? I don't know. I've been using it for 20 years. I don't know where it comes from. I didn't make it up. But you see, you have a peace of conscience. You look at the things you've done, the things you have done, and you have, or maybe even that you just did, and you say, this is terrible, but this cannot condemn me. God loves me in spite of this. This has been covered. Peace of conscience. In tremendous ability to deal with guilt. Tremendous ability. Secondly, I guess you could say we have a peace for lack of a better term a piece of identity in other words Jesus Christ is the end of, the, of our struggle to live up to prove ourselves to show the world that we're somebody and as a result there's a tremendous calm because when you succeed in, an, in, in anything you do now whether it's work or love if you have a success it's not about you anymore your identity is in Christ if you fail it's not about you your identities in Christ. You know, you're not all the way up and down, you're not inflated and deflated all the time. There's this tremendous poise we talk about, a kind of equilibrium that comes from the gospel. And then one more thing. There's also a lack of anxiety because when you look at the circumstances of life, you know, it's very frightening to <laughs> to watch the stock market. If you have any money in the stock market, it's frightening. I mean, you look at the circumstances and you say what? Well, if you're a Christian, you say nothing can wipe me out because my real wealth is safe, you see. My real health, my real wealth, my real identity, everything that really matters to me, my adoption, my justification, my inheritance with him, you see, all the things that really matter, circumstances can't change them a bit. They can't touch them. And so there's a tremendous radical peace Instead of anxiety, there's trust, you see. Instead of, instead of guilt, there's freedom. It's tremendous. But when Christ comes into your life, he also brings new, new fights, new strife. What? Well, okay, first of all, if you become a Christian, you really have to give yourself to people. You make yourself vulnerable to people. You go out on, your, on the limb. You, you, you invest in people. You, you open your heart to people, and you're going to get hurt. There's going to be strife. Now you know what. Before you were a Christian, it's possible that you really tried to help people. But before you're a Christian, you help people not so much for their sake, but for your sake. You rescue people so that you can be sure that you're a great person. In which case, you're kind of using them. When you really become a Christian, you get truly vulnerable to people. You go out into relationships now, not for their, not for your, their uh, your sake, and and uh, but for their sake. Finally, and you open up to them, and, and it's, you're going to get hurt, as Lewis says. The one way to be sure your heart's not broken is don't give it to anybody. Don't open it to anybody. Just hold on to it. You're going to be hurt. There's going to be a fight. Secondly, because the world, and we'll get to this here in a second, because the world doesn't like Jesus, because the world's upset with Jesus and his claims, then anyone who stands up and associates with Jesus, sometimes they're going to get you too. That's a new fight. But you know what? Here's one more thing. The Bible says that before your heart was united in trying to run away from Jesus. But when you become a Christian, we're told that you now, in a sense, have two natures. You have a new nature that's being renewed into submission to him, but you have an old part of yourself that's still running away. And as a result, the the fighting inside of the flesh and the spirit is a new problem created by the gospel. You didn't have it before. I was up here talking with Jeff about this. Jeff and I were saying, you know what, the gospel solves our problems. And actually, the gospel fundamentally solves all of our problems, but not before. It doesn't create some problems. It creates problems. It solves our problems in the sense that it shows us how to deal with them. And it shows us in a way how our problems never really, ultimately, can can destroy the things that are the most important to us. They can never really take us out. But on the other hand, the gospel not only gives us profound peace, so certain things that used to bother us terribly now don't, but it also gives us a new fight, so certain things that did not used to bother us out of avoidance and out of denial now do. And that's the faith. And that's the overview. And that's the reason why. Don't don't ask me to try this next year. That's why this is part of the lessons of Christmas. This This should be one of the lessons. Stirs up new strife. Okay, now let's move on a little further. Secondly, and these are a little bit more particular. The basic message here is that this narrative shows us that Christianity brings a new fight as well as peace into your life. But... Here's a couple other things we can look at briefly. Secondly, the reason for the fight, the reason that Christianity stirs up fighting actually between people sometimes, and even within you, the flesh spirit, is what? If you look carefully, what was it that really evoked this tremendous violent uh, reaction against Jesus? Because... When the wise men come, and they come to Jerusalem, and they say they're looking for, the, for, for Jesus, they don't say, we're looking for a personal Savior. They don't say that. They don't say, we're looking for a personal Savior who, if we come to him with our needs, he'll meet those needs. And if we come to him with our problems, he will help those problems. And if we come to him with our guilt, he'll forgive our guilt. If he'd come like that, everybody said, great, let's go. But that's not what they said. They said, what did they say? Well, you know, up in the early part of the chapter, it says, Wise men came from the east, and they came to Jerusalem, and they said, Where is the one who has born, been born king? That's what stirred it up. It says, now this was so funny, it says, When Herod heard this, he was disturbed in all of Jerusalem with him. In light of the fact that Herod was a murderous, genocidal, paranoid schizophrenic, or something like, disturbed. You know, I love the Bible says, When Herod heard this, he was troubled. Yes, I guess he was troubled. When a king... Lands in a land where there's already a king claiming the kingship, there's going to be war. The real problem was that, was that the wise men were looking for a king. Now, that's the real problem. That's the reason why there's a fight. When, Christ, when Jesus Christ comes, that's the reason why there's a fight between people and there's a fight within people. What I mean by a fight is rather simple. Jesus Christ did not just come say, saying, come unto me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He did say that. Take my yoke upon me and learn of me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. That's wonderful. That's not all he said. What else did he say? He says, unless you deny yourself... And take up your cross. You cannot be my disciple. He says, unless you hate your father and mother for my sake and even your own life, unless you lose your life for my sake, you won't find it. He says, unless you cut, you have to be willing to cut off your right hand or pluck out your eye rather than lose me. Nothing is worth losing me. You call me teacher and Lord, he says, and you are right for that is what I am. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do everything I tell you? He didn't just say I'm your savior. He says, I'm your king. And that's the reason for the fight. Absolutely. This is the reason why John Stott, in that very famous passage in Basic Christianity, says, very famous passage. He says, No one who ever met Jesus Christ ever responded moderately to him. He says, The only three things you ever see anybody ever doing when they meet the real Jesus is either they run away from him in terror or they assault him with fury. Or else they prostrate themselves in utter surrender—either hmm? terror or fury or complete surrender. But nobody ever ever responded to him moderately. And here's the reason why: because he claimed to be king. And you will be either violently for him or against him. But anybody who says, "Well, religion's a private thing," and, and I'm, just, you know, I, I think you shouldn't get all excited about Christianity, and it's nice to have a little religion—you don't even know who he is. If you get near his real claims, his claims of utter kingship, you will either run in, in terror or you will assault him in fury or you will fall down and surrender. But I'll tell you this, if you fall down and surrender, that's what, as we mentioned a minute before, that's what even creates fighting inside. Because even when you surrender to him and the Lord Jesus comes into your life, he starts renewing your heart. But there's a part of your heart that the Bible calls the flesh that to the very end of our days always fights against the claims of his kingship. Not, not the offer of his salvation, but the claims of his sovereignty. And what we're taught here is, that, is all this is because he's born king. Joy to the world. The Lord is come. Let earth receive its king. And because of that, there's this fight. That's the reason for it. Okay, thirdly, we also learn not only that Christianity, that Jesus Christ brings a fight as well as peace, and secondly, that he brings the fight because of the claims of his kingship, but thirdly, he bring, we, the third thing is that if you're associated with him, you'll be persecuted. You see, the violent reaction is against Jesus, but now look at it. The members of Jesus' family become refugees not just Jesus and the citizens of Jesus city are slaughtered not just Jesus you see the, the hatred of the world structures for Jesus will engulf those who associate with him and you see when you when you see the whole family running for their lives to Egypt you have to remember what the bible says that we're his family Remember that place where they say to Jesus in Mark, at the end of Mark chapter three, uh, "Where's my, uh, you know, your your mothers and brothers and sisters are out waiting for you?" And Jesus says, "Those who do the will of my, uh, the, those who do my will, you are my mothers and brothers and sisters." And that, and I'll will tell you something else. The Bible also says that when you become a Christian, you not only become a member of His family, but also a citizen of His city. Paul, at the end of Philippians three, says, "We are we are citizens of His city." Uh, in Galatians, of the city, the Jerusalem which is above. And as a result, when you look at the family running for its life, and if if you even look at the little children who are citizens of Jesus' city, and they are engulfed in the hostility of the world structures against Jesus, then you have a picture of yourself. The Bible says categorically in 2 Timothy 3.12, those who live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, I'm not trying to create a persecution complex. But here's here's something very simple. If you really want to understand this lesson... You've really got to look at Jesus and all the birth narratives. See, on the one hand, some of the narratives, we have people attracted to Jesus. We have the shepherds. We have the wise men. We have all these people attracted to Jesus. Here, we have people utterly revulsed and repulsed by Jesus. You see, on the one hand, you have him attracting people. On the other hand, you have people who are absolutely out to kill him. At a much, much, much lower level, that's what we should be like ourselves In other words, if you're always getting persecuted, there's something wrong. And if you're never getting persecuted, there's something wrong. If you are always... you know, It's very easy for people to say, Well, I speak up for Jesus, and I tell people the truth. And yes, I'm always getting people... I'm always being persecuted by people, but I'm being persecuted for Jesus' sake. No, probably not. Not if you're always being persecuted. Jesus wasn't always persecuted. He was also incredibly attractive. And if you're always being persecuted, it probably means... That you're rude and self righteous and insensitive. On the other hand, if you're never being persecuted, nobody ever gets mad at you. Nobody's ever irritated with you. That either means you're so lukewarm in your imitation of Jesus that no one considers you remarkable, or else you are such a coward in never opening your mouth, nobody knows why you're remarkable. If you're always being persecuted, unlike Jesus, or if you're never being persecuted, unlike Jesus, you're unlike Jesus. The birth narratives, when taken as a whole, show that he attracts and he repels, and so should you. And if you don't, you're not living like him. Fourthly, and we have to wrap it up, this also tells us that, well, it tells us that God habitually, habitually, uses the despised, uses the unimportant, uses the things that the world does not respect as ways of getting his message across. Uh, when Joseph and Mary go back to Israel, do you notice? It's, it's something I, I overlooked it all of my life until I started studying it for this, this particular service. Uh, when they go back, they don't want to go back to Galilee and Nazareth. They're from Nazareth, but they want to settle in Israel. But they're afraid and they're forced to go back to Galilee and Nazareth. Now, Galilee and Nazareth was outside of Judea proper. It was a place filled with Gentiles and barbarians. Jews didn't want to live there. But worse than that, it was a, evidently it was a hick place. It was a podunk place. And in, in John chapter 1, verse 46 when some people tell nathaniel hey we found the messiah we, he, we, we found the guy that really has the key to everything his name is jesus of nazareth you remember what remember what uh, nathaniel says nazareth he says can anything good come out of nazareth now the world insists that if anybody's got the answers, it's got to come from certain places. It's got to come from people with certain credentials. It's got to come from people who look in a certain way, who've gone to certain schools. It's got to come from Madison Square Garden. It's got to come from Le Cirque. It's got to come from uptown or downtown, but it can't come, you see, from Hot Coffee, Mississippi. It can't. Nothing Nothing will ever come out of places like that. From first to last in the Bible, God initially brings his message, not through the Egyptians, not through the Romans, not through the the Assyrians, not through the Babylonians, through the Jews. A little country, a little race, never in power. Never. Then he goes, later on, what? How does he deal with with Goliath? Does he bring along a bigger colossus to deal with Goliath? No, a little shepherd boy. How does he talk to Elijah? Through the earthquake, wind, and fire? No, through the still, small voice. And how does he bring his salvation to the world? Through a a man who's born to a poor family. Through a man who's born in a wrong place, in a stable. Through a man who's raised in Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? I'll tell you, one. if there's one thing that comes through in every bit of the Christmas story, is that if you are a smart, sophisticated person, and you insist that only smart, sophisticated people have the truth, you're not going to be much of a Christian Maybe maybe you'll never become a Christian at all, but you certainly won't be much of a Christian until you get over it. Jesus Christ, the gospel, Christmas, turns the world's idea of success upside down. All during Jesus' life, the apostles, the disciples keep saying to him, Jesus, when are you going to take power and save the world? And Jesus keeps saying, I'm going to lose power to save the world. And they go... Lord, when are you going to take power and save the world? They don't get it. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Absolutely. This is the thing. This is the Christmas narrative that says, Jesus Christ comes into your world, comes into your life. He will not come the way you think. He will will humble you. He will not come only bringing peace. He will also bring war. He will not come simply being a savior. He will also insist on being a king. But his suffering is redemptive suffering. His fight heals. The old kinds of fights you used to have just wound people and yourself. His kind of fight heals. One last thing. You notice this wonderful little passage where it says... After the little children were, uh, were all wounded and killed and so on, he says, Then it was said, what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. There's an awful lot behind that. Rachel, you know, Rachel was the, was the uh, wife of Jacob, and he, she gave birth to all sorts of sons, at least 12 and several daughters. And at one point, She died. She died in childbirth. She died giving birth to Benjamin, and she was buried at Bethlehem. She died giving birth. Her death, her pain, her suffering, her trauma was really a gateway into greater life. And through her came the Messiah. When she was buried there in Bethlehem, Jeremiah, many years later, when when Israel had sinned against God, and as a result, they were going into exile— they were, they were, they, when the exiles were trooping out to Babylon, away from Israel, it looked like Israel was dead. They went on by Rachel's grave, and Jeremiah gave the passage, gave the prophecy that's quoted here, when he said, Rachel's again weeping for her children. But you know what was so brilliant about Jeremiah? Just like her original suffering and death was really only an apparent death. It was a way to life. So the exile looked like it was the end for Israel, but actually not. It was a way of regeneration. They came on back. And even now, the suffering of this world that comes because of Jesus, the suffering that comes into your life because of Jesus, if you give it to Jesus, will always be only an apparent death. It'll be a way to life. That's what's being said here, all the way through here. Yes, persecution. Yes, fight. Yes, submission. Yes, suffering. Yes, humiliation, going to Nazareth and so on. But what it's really saying is this is the one kind of wound that heals. This is the one kind of fight that makes whole. And tonight, are you weeping over anything? Are you weeping over anything? if you're able to come to him and you're to say, Lord Jesus, I'm going to obey you in this weeping and I'm going to give it to you, really what it's saying is it'll only be an apparent death. It'll be a way to life. He who humbles himself will be exalted. He who exalts himself will be humbled. He who seeks to save his life will lose it. He who loses his life, says Jesus, for my sake, will find it. Let's pray. Our Father, first of all, we're going to ask as we go to the table that you would show us what it means that Jesus was broken and poured out. And because he was broken and poured out, we can have life. Now there's a new fight that comes into our life as Christians. There's a new brokenness, in a sense. There's a a new being poured out. But we thank you that this is the one that heals. The old one did not. The old fighting, the old uh, trouble... The old distress did not. The new, obedient fighting, the obedient trouble, it does nothing but brings life. Help us to see that tonight as we meet you over the table. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.